All right, Gulliver's Travels, Part 4, A Voyage to the Country of the Wenhams. Now, I think you'll see that the story and the satire here in Part 4 it has a very different tone and very different kind of inflection than we saw in Book 1, and we'll be comparing those as we go along. Notice the opening sentence here. I continued at home with my wife and children about five months in a very happy condition if I could have learned the lesson of knowing when I was well. So the very first sentence is that he's now, on the surface, this is just he's going to get shipwrecked again. He's been shipwrecked three times previous. Uh, but now he's talking about, I was I was happy with my wife and children, and man, I if I had just stayed there, I might have been happy. And we'll see that Culliver, by the end of this, is very unhappy, and it's uh, it, it's foreshadowed right there. Another thing in, in this opening paragraph, he's talking about, he goes on this voyage and he talks to another captain and it says, on the 16th, he was parted from us by a storm. I heard since my return that his ship foundered and none escaped but one cabin boy. He was an honest man and a good sailor, but a little too positive in his own opinions, which, he, which was the cause of his destruction, as it hath been of several others. So this is another interesting piece of foreshadowing in this opening paragraph that here's this captain who died because he was a little too positive in his own opinions. That is, he's too sure that he's right to take advice from anyone. And I think that is also foreshadowing what's going to happen to Gulliver by the end of of part four. Now, another thing, one way that this contrasts with part one in the voyage to Lilliput is that that shipwreck was completely an act of nature. It, they were in a storm and uh, foundered and uh, he washed up on shore. This is a very different kind of, of uh, story about how he gets on, the, on this strange land. He was the captain and there's a mutiny. So this is not natural events beyond anyone's control. This is human evil. This is the, his crew uh, marooning him deliberately on this on this island. So that tells us again something of the contrast here. This is a darker story. This is not just oh he landed on the land with the little people. Uh, this is he is marooned there by his his own people. And when he sees the what he'll learn later are called the the yahoos. Look at the way he describes them. He says, their shape was very singular and deformed, which a little discomposed me, so that I lay down behind a thicket to observe them better. Some of them came forward near the place where I lay, gave me an opportunity of distinctly marking their forms. Their heads and breasts were covered with a thick hair, some frizzled and others lank. They had beards like goats and a long ridge of hair down their backs and the four parts of their legs and feet, but the rest of their bodies were bare so that I might see their skins, which were of brown buff color. They had no tails nor any hair at all on their buttocks except around the anus, which I presume nature had placed there to defend them as they sat on the ground. For, their post for this posture they used as well as lying down and often stood on their hind feet. They climbed high trees as nimbly as a squirrel, for they had long extended claws before and behind, terminating in sharp points and hooked. They would often spring and bound and leap with prodigious agility. 
The females were not so large as the males. They had long, lank hair on their heads and only a sort of down on the rest of their bodies, except about the anus and pedunda. Their dugs hung between their forefeet and often reached almost to the ground as they walked. The hair of both sexes was of several colors, brown, red, black, and yellow. Upon the whole, I never beheld in all my travels so disagreeable an animal, or one against which I naturally conceive such so strong an antipathy. Now, when you're first reading this and you don't know that the yahoos are actually people, uh, they sound like these hideous, you know, deformed, kind of weird creatures. That's, the str- again, the strategy of defamiliarization. He's showing us something that we're familiar with, but from a new angle. And notice that Gulliver is repulsed by them from the beginning. Um, so that it tells us something about his attitude towards mankind. And then the second, uh, oh, notice too that when uh, they they trap him, uh, you know, they run up a tree, and he's at the bottom of the tree, and they began to discharge their excrement on my head. Here again, uh, uh, Swift does this a lot, these kind of excremental uh, parts of the story. And then the horses, the, the Winhams, come and rescue them. They chase the yahoos away, and he's amazed at how, uh, you know, how this horse acts. It acts like it it's, uh, has reason. And notice he says that the, the behavior of these animals was so orderly and rational, was so acute and judicious, that I at last concluded they must be, needs be magicians. So he's saying, well, maybe there's some magic, and there are people who have just transformed themselves into, uh, uh, into a horse form. Or he also says, you know, I was amazed to see such actions and behavior in brute beasts, and concluded with myself that if the inhabitants of this country were endued with a proportionable degree of reason, they must need be the wisest people on earth. So we're saying, if the horses are this smart and this irrational, just imagine how smart the men must be around here. Of course, that's very ironic because we've seen that the men on this island are not at all rational. Um, And this is the kind of flip-flop that's going on. The, The humans are animals and the animals have a human level of reason. Uh, they're kind of mirrors of each other. And, uh, you know, he is, he's talking, he learns about the words Winham and Yahoo, and, you know, is beginning to learn the, what these species are. And look in, in chapter two when the, the Winhams take them back to their, their home and uh, compare him with one of the, the Yahoos they have. He says, my horror and astonishment are not to be described when I observed in this abominable animal a perfect human figure. The face of it, indeed, was flat and broad, the nose depressed and the lips large and the mouth wide, but these differences are common to all savage nations, where the lineaments of the countenance are distorted by the natives suffering their their infants to lie groveling on the earth, or by carrying them on their backs, nuzzling with their faces against the mother's shoulders." Uh, now, there's some questionable biology going on there. But uh, the idea is that, well, these are savage human beings, but this is a human being. These these animals that I was so repulsed uh, by that literally shit on me, uh, those are human beings. And uh, Gulliver says that the more I came near them, the more hateful they grew. So, uh, again, that's that's very much the structure of this book. The closer he observes humanity, the more repulsive it becomes to him. 
and he has a, some trouble, you know, finding out what he's going to eat because he can't eat oats like and hay like the horses do. But they find food for him. Uh, one again, uh, interesting, intriguing little detail uh, is that there's no salt. He says, "I was at first at a great loss for salt, but custom soon reconciled the want of it, and I am confident that the frequent use of salt among us is an effect of luxury." Um, well, actually, no. Salt is essential for human beings, um, but the idea there is no there is no salt. There's no seasoning. There's no flavor in Wynnum country, uh, and again, I think that's symbolically very appropriate. Notice that he starts calling the the horse my master. So already we're kind of flipping the things. He the human it sees the horse as the master rather than the other way around. And we also begin to see, I think, some distance between Gulliver the character and Swift the narrator. Uh, the Gulliver is completely taken in by how wonderful the Winhams are. But Swift as the narrator, I think, drops in some little details like, you know, the lack of salt. Um, it says they have not the least idea of books or literature. Well, that's not, from Swift's point of view, that may not be the most admirable thing. That may be a weakness in their society, not a strength. Um, and also we get into the, the uh, they say, they have no word for lie. They have to say, he said the thing which was not that's their only way they can express a lie because they, they tell the truth. Um, well, isn't all of Gulliver's travels saying the thing that was not? Uh, the, the, the Wynnums don't have any poetry. They don't have any uh, imagination. They don't have any fiction. They actually do have poetry. They sing songs of their heroic deeds, but they don't have any fiction. Uh, they they have a very narrow kind of mind in a certain way. Uh, and again, Swift gives us the clues for that, but Gulliver seems you know completely taken with the Winhams almost from the beginning. And they describe in chapter four uh, this this theory of language that they have and how difficult it is to describe to them what a lie is. And he said, for he argued, his, his master, the horse, that the use of speech was to make us understand one another and to receive information of facts. Now, if anyone said the thing which was not, these ends were defeated, because I cannot properly be, uh, be said to understand him. And I am so far from receiving information that he leaves me worse than in ignorance. For I am led to believe that a, a thing black, when it is white and short, when it is long. And these were all the notions he had concerning the faculty of lying, so perfectly well understood and so universally practiced among human creatures. All right, now, from a certain, a certain way of looking at this, you can see, well, obviously the Wynnums are morally superior. They can't even imagine the idea of lying. But again, the th saying the thing that was not uh, is part of what fiction is. It's part of what Swift is doing in every word of Gulliver's Travels. He's telling us the thing that was not. Does that mean he's immoral? Well, maybe, or maybe it means that there's something missing, the missing element in the Winhams. Now, a lot of the, the middle part of, the, of uh, part four is these discussions that Gulliver has with his master. Notice, by the way, no names. None of the Winhams have names. Uh, 
that also the kind of lack of individuality or personality I think is very telling. Uh, but he's telling uh, Gulliver, telling them about how things are in his world. And again, this is the kind of defamiliarization strategy where we kind of see things in a new light. One little detail that he mentions uh, uh, that turns out to be relevant later on, uh, he was he tells them that they castrate horses to make them more pliable, and that will come up later. Um, but and also that the you know the uh, the Winhams are you know talk about how uh, inappropriate the human body is how you know all of its weaknesses he kind of finds fault with every part of my body um, and the weird ways that Gulliver has to use to describe uh, what things are like in his world he says this is in uh, near the the next to the last paragraph of of chapter four. He says that my country was governed by a female man whom we called a queen. Now that's, again, very interesting. A female man. Well, why is she a female man? Well, she's got to be a man. She's the one in charge, but she's a female. She's a female man. And the, his, his master, the horse, wants to know how he can get people to go with him on this ship. It seems like a weird thing to want to do. And he says, well, they were, um, I said that they were fellows of desperate fortunes forced to fly from the places of their birth on account of their poverty or their crimes. Some were undone by lawsuits. Others spent all they had in drinking, whoring, and gaming. Others fled for treason, many for murder, theft, poisoning, robbery, perjury, forgery, coining false money, for committing rapes or sodomy, for flying from their colors or deserting the enemy, and most of them had broken prison. None of these durst return to their native countries for the fear of being hanged or of starving in a jail, and therefore were under a necessity of seeking a livelihood in other places. Again, this is a very bleak view of human nature, but there's uh, obviously there's something to it. I think Swift had a ver- fairly dark view of human nature. Um, and he's, the, the uh, Wynnum, again, is, is he was wholly at a loss to know what could be the use or necessity of practicing these vices. Um, so he tried to give him an idea of the, the desire of power and riches, the terrible effects of lust, intemperance, malice, and envy. Um, you know, so there's power, government, war, law, punishment, and a thousand other things had no terms wherein that language could express them. So all of these ver- these very basic parts of human nature, there's no way to talk about them to the Winhams. They don't even have the words for these things. Now, in Chapter 5, we begin to get these long uh, passages where uh, Gulliver is describing what, his, uh, what the human world is like. So he talks about the causes or motives that made one country go to war with another. Uh, again, the Winhams don't really understand war. I answer that they were innumerable, but I should only mention a few of the chief. Sometimes the ambition of princes, who never think they have land or people enough to govern. Sometimes the corruption of ministers, who engage their master in a war in order to stifle or divert the clamor of the subjects against their evil administration. Differences in opinion have cost many millions of lives. For instance, whether flesh be bread or bread flesh whether the juice of a certain berry be blood or wine, whether uh, whistling be a vice or a virtue, whether it be better to kiss a post or throw it in the fire, 
what is the best color for a coat, whether black, white, red, or gray, and whether it should be long or short, narrow or wide, dirty or clean, with many more. Neither are any wars so furious and bloody or of so long continuance as those occasioned by difference of opinion, especially if, the, if they be in things indifferent. Now, here he's talking about the religious wars, which were, really were and had in it, uh, uh, swept through Europe. And they were about these kinds of points of religious doctrine. Uh, you know, should the uh, images of the cross be something that, that you, the, you kiss or it should be something that you burn? Um, those are the kinds of things. And so, again, this defamiliarization is exposing uh, the, the kind of absurdities of our uh, culture of our human world. So we get things like the uh, the definition of a soldier. It's a Yahoo hired to kill in cold blood as many of his own species who have never offended him as he possibly can. Uh, again, that's a very cynical way of looking at it, but that's that's the view here. It's a very dark, cynical view in this uh, in this part of Gulliver's Travels. Um, and the the his master says, well, you may have these wars, but you're such weak, feeble creatures that you could never really cause any any real harm. And Gulliver sets him straight on that. Um, I gave him a description of cannons, culverines, muskets, carabines, pistols, bullets, powder, swords, bayonets, battles, sieges, retreats, attacks, undermines, countermines, bombardments, sea fights, Ships sunk with a thousand men, twenty thousand killed on each side, dying groans, limbs flying in the air, smoke, noise, confusion, trampling to death under horses' feet, flight, per, flight, pursuant, uh, victory, uh, fields strewed with carcasses left for food to dogs and wolves and birds of prey, plundering, stripping, ravishing, burning and destroying, and to set forth the valor of my own dear countrymen, I assured him that I had seen them blow up a hundred enemies at once in a siege, and as many in a ship, and beheld the dead bodies drop down in pieces from the clouds to the great diversion of all the spectators. Now, here you get the, the tone. This is a, a strategy that uh, Swift uses, particularly in this part of Gulliver's Travels, is these long lists. Uh, it just kind of builds up and builds up, not just a few things that happen in war, but this long list, and it ends with that horrible image of the idea of pieces of human bodies falling like rain, and that being a diverting spectacle for people. And his master makes the, the observation that when a creature pretending to reason could be capable of such enormities, uh, of the wars that he's described, he dreaded lest the corruption of that faculty might be worse than brutality itself. He seemed therefore confident that instead of reason, we were only possessed of some quality fitted to increase our natural vices, as the reflection from a troubled stream returns the image of an ill-shapen body not only larger, but more distorted. So this is, I think, a key idea in, in this part of Gulliver's Travels, the idea of reason. Uh, going back to Aristotle, there's the idea that the definition of man is a rational animal. Well, Swift is kind of investigating that idea. What does the, the, the Winhams are quite literally rational animals, but they're not human. And the Yahoos are human, but they're animals that don't seem very rational. And as his master points out, look, if, if you've got the power of reason, 
and you use it, you know, just to make war more vicious and terrible for everyone, how is that? That's just a perversion of reason. Um, and he goes on until it says more things. The, one of my favorite ones is um, he's describing the law and lawyers. Um, he says, I, sell, I said there was a society of men among us, bred up from their youth in the art of proving by words multiplied for that purpose that white is black and black is white according as they are paid. To this society, all the rest of the people are slaves. For example, if my neighbor hath a mind to my cow, he hires a lawyer to prove that he ought to have my cow from me. I must then hire another to defend my right, it being against all rules of law that any man should be allowed to speak for himself. Now, in this case, I, who am the true owner, lie under two great disadvantages. First, my lawyer, being practiced almost from his cradle in defending falsehood, is quite out of his element when he would be an advocate for justice, which, as an office unnatural, he always attempts with great awkwardness, if not with ill will. The second disadvantage is that my lawyer must proceed with great caution, or else he will be reprimanded by the judges and abhorred by his brethren as one who would lessen the practice of the law. And therefore I have but two methods to preserve my cow. The first is to gain over my adversary's lawyer with a double fee, who will then betray his client by insinuating that he hath justice on his side. The second way is for my lawyer to make my cause appear un as unjust as he can by allowing the cow to belong to my adversary, and if this be skillfully done, will certainly bespeak the favor of the bench. Now, this is the kind of world turned upside down, and there's something, uh, you know, uh, very kind of painfully uh, on point about this idea of how the law works. It, that's how it feels sometimes. Uh, is this rational? I mean, aren't the, the lawyers supposed to be the ones who command reason? Um, and, uh, well, it, it turns out, well, they do, but they uh, – it, it's all, as he says, cant and jargon. Uh, they're very clever at this, but in the, the rest of their lives, they're not. And uh, Gulliver just kind of goes down the list and talks about all of the human institutions and shows how absurd they are, uh, even in their own terms. He says, but in order to feed the luxury and intemperance of the males and the vanity of the females, we sent away the greatest part of our necessary things to other countries, from whence in return we bought the materials of diseases, folly, and vice to spend among ourselves. Hence it follows of necessity that vast numbers of our people are compelled to seek their livelihood by begging, robbing, stealing, cheating, pimping, forswearing, flattering, suborning, forging, gaming, lying, fawning, hectoring, voting, scribbling, stargazing, poisoning, whoring, canting, libeling, free-thinking, and the like occupations, every, which of one, uh, every one of which terms I was at much pains to make him understand." Uh, I love the way he puts voting in there. You know, that's another way to make money. Um, again, this this sense of the these lists and the kind of absurdity and the kind of uh, building kind of avalanche of these negative things that he's talking about. He he talks about the the practice of medicine, you know, the profession or pretense of curing the sick. Uh, and it's done by forcing solids and liquids in at the anus and making evacuations at the mouth. 
Uh, so kind of literally everything turned upside down. Or he gets into the nature of government. Um, this is, you know, there's the chief minister of state uh, was uh, a creature wholly exempt from joy and grief, love and hatred, pity and anger, at least makes use of no other passions but violent desire of wealth, power, and titles. So again, these completely kind of greedy for power uh, it distorts their their nature. And again, part of the effect of this is how relentless it is. Uh, there's every every human institution is seen in this bleak light, and it doesn't have any of the lightness of tone that the uh, the satire of the country of Lilliput did where it seemed kind of uh, kind of funny. This seems really kind of awful. Look at the end of chapter 6, where he's describing the nobility uh, and said that uh, from the inbreeding, they're, they're the most kind of sickly kinds of people. He says that a weak, diseased body, a meager countenance, and sallow complexion are the true marks of noble blood. And a healthy, robust appearance is so disgraceful in a man of quality that the world concludes his real father to have been a groom or a coachman. The imperfections of his mind run parallel with those of his body, being a composition of spleen, dullness, ignorance, caprice, sensuality, and pride. Without the consent of this illustrious body, no law can be enacted, repealed, or altered, and these nobles have likewise the decision of all our possessions without appeal." So, again, he's saying how absurd and and really grotesque the uh, human society is. And he says at the beginning of chapter 7 that, I began to view the actions and passions of man in a very different light. Well, yeah, he sure has. In describing them to the, the Wynnum, in, uh, who looks at things from this purely rational point of view, it all looks awful. Um and he says that, uh, and to think the honor of my own kind not worth managing, which besides it was impossible for me to do before a person of so acute a judgment as my master, who daily convinced me of a thousand faults in myself where I had not the least prim perception before, and which with us would never be numbered even among human infirmities. So he's seeing new weaknesses in, hum in his own human nature all the time. And he, so he says, I entered in a, on a firm resolution never to return to humankind. He's sick of it. He's had enough. He, this, this view of man that he's gotten has turned him away from that. He wants to stay with the Winhams and never go back to human society. Now, in, in Chapter 7, we get, uh, we've, we've had these long speeches by, uh, or accounts of speeches by Gulliver talking about human society. And in chapter 7, we get his, his master seeing parallels between what he's learned about uh, Gulliver's uh, people and the, the yahoos on the, in, in Wynnum land. Uh, he says, he looked, at us, he looked upon us as a sort of animals to whose share, by what accident he could not conjecture, some small pittance of reason had fallen, whereof we made no other use of than by assistance to aggravate our natural corruptions and to acquire new ones which nature had not given us. So again, Swift and Gulliver are both very, uh, well, Swift, I think, is very skeptical about rationality. 
the idea that man is rational. This is remember this is written in the age of reason, uh, where you know they believed that uh, there was a real belief in the culture that reason would solve all of our problems. And Swift looked around and said, "Really? Uh, we have we've had human reason for a long time, and yet we're doing all of this absurd stuff. Maybe humans aren't that rational, and maybe rationality isn't the answer to everything." So uh, Gulliver's master is diagnosing all of the the faults of human society. He says, our institutions of government and laws were plainly owing to our gross defects in reason. You know, if you were just more rational, everything would be okay. Um, He says that the yahoos were known to hate one another more than they did any different species of animal. Uh, so there again, he sees parallels in the way the yahoos behave and what he said, and he's uh, parallels with greed. And he gives the story about how the uh, the yahoos will uh, get these little shiny stones that are no use to anyone, but they just hoard them up. And if you put them away, they get uh, they get distraught. Um, and so he also says. Uh, this is a, the, the idea of avarice. He's seen a, an example of that. Or he said, uh, he said it was common when two yahoos discovered such a stone in a field and were contending which of them should be the proprietor, a third would take the advantage and carry it away from them both, which my master would needs contend to have some resemblance with our suits of law. When I thought it for our credit not to undeceive him, since the decision he mentioned was much more equitable than many decisions among us, because the plaintiff and the defendant there lost nothing beside the stone they contended for, whereas our courts of equity would have uh, would never have dismissed the cause while either of them had anything left. So notice that Gulliver is seeing, you know, taking the criticisms that uh, his master gives and seeing actually things are even worse than he's saying. Um, Again, the Yahoos have this undistinguished appetite to devour everything. And notice that uh, um, he talks about the the Yahoos' evil, the sickness that they have. He says, The cure prescribed is a mixture of their own dung and urine, forcibly put down the Yahoos' throat. This I have uh, since often known to have been taken with success and do here freely recommend it to my countrymen for the public good and as an admirable specific against all diseases produced by repletion. Now, this is, again, I think an interesting symbolic detail here that the way that they cure the yahoos is by making them eat their own dung and urine. In a way, that's what Book 4, Part 4 of Gulliver's Travels is. Um, we're having to uh, see the own excrement of the human nature, and maybe that will cure us of something. Now, in Chapter 8, um, Gulliver has a uh, an encounter with a, a female yahoo. So it happened that a young female yahoo, standing behind a bank, saw the whole proceeding and, inflamed by desire, as the nag and I conjectured, came running with all speed and leaped into the water within five yards of the place where I bathed. I was never in my life so terribly frightened. The nag was grazing at some distance and not suspecting any harm. She embraced me after the most fulsome manner. 
I roared as loud as I could, and the nag came galloping toward me, whereupon she quitted her grasp with the utmost reluctancy, and leaped upon the opposite bank, where she stood gazing and howling all the time that I was putting on my clothes. Uh, so this is, uh, and again, proof that he is... Uh, these are humans. This uh, this uh, female Yahoo was sexually attracted to him, seeing him naked there, and when grabbed him, um, and his reaction is revulsion to that. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't want that. He's kind of rejecting his own humanity in a way, and all of this is contrasted with the 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 Winhams. Uh, it says their grand maxim is to cultivate reason and to be wholly governed by it. So this is a holy, purely rational society. They don't even have a word for opinion. What would that mean? If you see the facts, those are the facts. You don't have opinions about them. You just acknowledge the truth. Um, and as nature teaches them to love the whole species, not individuals. And we find out that their their way of breeding is very rational. That they uh, the, their marriages are, are kind of arranged, and it's not upon account of love, but to preserve the race from degenerating. Um, and if you know, and their children, they don't have any really kind of love for their children. If uh, they have one couple of horses, can't have children. Uh, some that do have more than they need will give them one. Um, there's no kind of uh, emotion or uh, compassion. And again, Gulliver seems to be seeing this, oh, this is great, see how perfectly rational they are? But I think that Swift is suggesting that maybe pure, perfect rationality is inhuman. That's why they're, these are horses, they're animals, they're not human, they're inhuman, uh, and being a kind of a rational creature that doesn't have love, uh, doesn't breed for love, doesn't understand lies, uh, there's, doesn't have any salt in their culture, um, this is something that is, that's, is that really better than the yahoos, the pure, the pure bestiality and the pure rationality? Uh, neither one of them are very appealing, though Gulliver, like the age of reason seems to be taking the side of reason here. Swift may be suggesting that that's, uh, that's a mistake, that there's something wrong or perverse about that for a human being. Now, in chapter 9, we get uh, an account of one of the, the grand assemblies of the, the Winhams, and it says that the, the, the question to be debated was whether the Yahoos should be exterminated from the face of the earth. Uh, so that we kind of, you know, back and forth, whether they should, you know, use them or uh, get rid of them. And here's where that idea of castration comes back in. Gulliver's master has gone to this great assembly and uh, it talks about, he says, I had mentioned a custom we had of castrating Winhams when they were young in order to render them tame that the operation was easy and safe and that it was no shame to learn wisdom from brutes as industry is taught by the ant and building by the swallow. For So I translate their words, linath, and although it may uh, be a much larger fowl, that this invention might be practiced among the younger yahoos here, which, besides rendering them tractable and fitter for use, would in an age put an end to the whole species without destroying life. Again, there's something really 
creepy about this. They're going to, they don't want to actually kill all the, you know, that's what, they haven't wanted to go out and kill all of the yahoos. Um, but, you know, if we just castrate a generation of them, they'll die off and we won't have to do any violence. That'll be much more rational, won't it? Um, you know, the, the uh, Swift is showing the dark side of rationality in the same way that he's been showing the dark side of the animality of man, the, the passions. Um, and we find out that the, uh, the Winhams have no word in their language to express anything that is evil except what they borrow from the deformities or ill qualities of the yahoos. Thus they denote the folly of a servant, an omission of a child, a stone that cuts their feet, a continuance of foul or unreasonable weather, and the like, by adding to each epithet of Yahoo. For instance, Hunam Yahoo, you know, he gives a list of these words. You know, uh, the only, their only word for bad is Yahoo, human. Uh, now, interestingly, in a way, that's exactly what Gulliver has been doing. Every evil is because of man. Uh, so he is kind of taking on the the uh, thoughts of the, the yahoos and their way of looking at things. And he says in, in chapter 10 uh, how, how wonderful things are here. He says, I enjoyed perfect health of body and tranquility of mind. I did not feel the treachery or inconstancy of a friend, nor the in inquiries or secret of an op or secret or open enemy. I had no occasions of bribing, flattering, or pimping to procure the favor of any great man or his mistress or his minion. I wanted no fence against fraud or oppression. Here was neither physician to destroy my body, nor lawyer to ruin my fortune, no informer to watch my words and actions or forge accusations against me for hire. Here were no gibbers, censurers, backbiters, pickpockets, highwaymen, housebreakers, attorneys, bawds, buffoons, gamesters, politicians, wits, splinos, uh, no leaders or, of, or followers of party and faction, no encouragers to vice by seducements or examples, no dungeons, axes, gibbets, or whipping posts or pillories, no cheating shopkeepers or mechanics. No, again, it goes on and on, but here's one of those long lists. And so, yes, that's true. But you know why he doesn't have those things? Because there aren't any people around. He's totally alone. Uh, he, he has lost all the bad parts of society, but he's lost all the parts of society. Um, but he seems perfectly contented with that. And he says, when I thought of my family, my friends, my countrymen, or human race in general, I consider them as they really were. Yahoos in shape and disposition, perhaps a little more civilized and qualified with the gift of speech, both making no other use of reason than to improve and multiply those vices whereof their uh, brethren in this country had only the share that nature allotted them. So they're, you know, when he thinks about the people back home, they're just yahoos like this. They're worse. They have a little bit of reason and they just use it to make up even more vices. And so he begins to walk like a horse. You know, he's kind of imitating their gait. Uh, he, he's being, he's kind of going native here with the with the Winhams. But then he gets the news that the council has decided, the great assembly 
did therefore exhort him either to employ me like the rest of my species or command me to swim back to the place from whence I came. That the first of these expedients was utterly rejected by all the Winhams who had ever seen me at his house or their own, for they alleged that because I had some rudiments of reason... Now, okay, look at this. So there are two possibilities. They could just employ him like a, 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 a workhorse for them, like the other yahoos, or send him back. And he says, all of the Winhams who had seen him said, oh, well, we can't make him work along with the other yahoos. And we might think that's because, oh, well, he's more rational. He has some dignity. He says, no, no. It says, because I had some rudiments of reason added to the natural pravity of these animals, it was to be feared I might be able to seduce them into the woody or, or, and mountainous parts of the country and bring them in troops by night to destroy the Winham cattle as being naturally of the ravenous kind and averse from labor. So, no, they can't uh, uh, let him there because he could, he, he would give the, he'd be a leader, he, he would lead a, a Yahoo rebellion. So they're going to have to uh, send him away. And he falls into a swoon, he faints, he can't believe. And his plan is to go to, he finds a small island uh, that he can go to and he'll just go there and live alone. He has no interest in going back to uh, the, the human world. Um, and look at this moment at the uh, near the end of chapter ten, where he's taking leave of his master. I took a second leave of my master, but as I was going to prostrate myself to kiss his hoof, he did me the honor to raise it gently to my mouth. I am not ignorant how much I have been censored for mentioning this last particular. Detractors are pleased to think it improbable that so illustrious a person should descend to give so great a mark of distinction to a creature so inferior as I. Um, now, think again the, the kind of what Swift is doing here. Um, he there's something kind of uh, again obsequious. It, it, Gulliver has mixed up his values. Uh, it, you know, he's going to, and it, he's he is. Uh, Overjoyed that the the uh, horse would raise his hoof a little so he could kiss it, and he says he's censured for saying that. People criticize him for saying that. He says, "Yeah, because it's uh, you know it's hor- it's you know uh, unseemly." Uh, but no, what they couldn't believe is that so illustrious a person would give me a favor. He, he's completely lost it. He's out of touch with human values now. Um, and he tells us in chapter 11 that my design was, if possible, to discover some small island uninhabited. Uh, and, you know, so horrible was the idea I conceived, returning to live in the society and under the government of yahoos. So he gets, uh, he finds a group of natives uh, who shoot him with an arrow, uh, and he. he he gets wounded and he has to go and get help. He tries to escape when a, a boat is coming for him, but he can't. Um, and so a Portuguese uh, ship picks him up and he tells them, he said, I, was, I said I was a poor Yahoo banished from the Winhams and desired they would please to let me depart. Um, and so they're, you know, wondering why he sounds like a horse when he talks. Uh, again, he's really kind of gone native. Uh, I think it's interesting that of all of the uh, voyages that Gulliver takes, this is the only one where he doesn't have 
evidence of his journey. Remember when he came back from Lilliput, he had the little miniature sheep and cattle with him. And in each of the journeys, he has something that he brings back from the land that proves that he was really there. He doesn't have anything here. And I think that's significant. I think this is, and it also, it makes people around him question his sanity. And maybe it makes us question his sanity as well. Um, And in fact, they say, they all conjectured that my misfortunes had impaired my reason. Well, I think they have. I think that is literally what has happened. His reason, he's not thinking correctly. Man is not maybe as rational an animal as he thinks he is. And Gulliver maybe is not as rational an animal as he thinks he is. Now, we get a, a, a character here who only very briefly appears, but I think is very important in uh, part four. That's the, the captain of the ship, Pedro Dominguez. Now, he is incredibly gracious and kind to Gulliver, and Gulliver does not acknowledge it. He, he kind of disdains him. He doesn't uh, see how, you know, he, this guy takes him in. He, he gives him his own clothes. He uh, lets him live in his own house. Um, he is, um, you know, incredibly, he's a living example that the image of humanity that Gulliver has been talking about in most of book four is not the whole truth, that not all people are as uh, venal, as as horrible as Gulliver has been making them out to be. But he can't see that. He doesn't he never acknowledges that. And when he gets home, he doesn't want to have anything to do with his family either. Uh, he rejects their company. He prefers staying in the in the stables with his horses. Uh, now let's look at a, a couple of things here in the, the final chapter, chapter twelve. First of all, he, he says uh, that At the very beginning of chapter 12, he says, I could perhaps, like others, have astonished thee with strange, improbable tales, but I rather chose to relate plain matter of fact in the simplest manner and style, because my principal design was to inform and not to amuse thee. This is very wonderfully ironic, because, of course, this is a very improbable tale, much more improbable than the, the actual uh, the, the real life journals that uh, you know the, the travelers would bring back, uh, and but he's saying I would strictly adhere to the truth. Uh, well, of course, Swift is kind of having a joke at the expense of Gulliver here because this is all obviously fictional. But it's also I think that Gulliver is mistaking the truth with the facts. Uh, of course, Gulliver's travels is a work of fiction, not a fact. But that doesn't mean that it might not in some very important ways be true and have real insights about human society and human nature. Uh, Gulliver can't see those fine distinctions. Um, So again, the satire, I think, in book four really turns on Gulliver as much as it does on human society. Uh, now, another th- point that he addresses in Book 12 is, well, you went to all of these places. Why didn't you claim them for uh, for England? Um, and he says something about colonization here. For instance, a crew of pirates are driven by a storm they know not whither. At length, a boy discovers land from the topmast. They go on shore to rob and plunder. 
They see and harmless people are entertained with kindness. They give the country a new name. They take formal possession of it for the king. They set up a rotten plank or a stone for a memorial. They murder two or three dozen of the natives, bring away a couple more by force for a sample, return home, and get their pardon. Hence, here commences a new dominion, acquired with a title by divine right. Ships are sent with the first opportunity. The natives driven out or destroyed, their princes tortured to discover their gold, a free license given to all acts of inhumanity and lust, the earth reeking with the blood of the inhabitants, and this execrable crew of butchers employed in so pious an expedition is a modern colony set to convert and civilize an idolatrous and barbarous people. Uh, again, the irony is just dripping. The sarcasm is just dripping there. Um, and we can see Swift, uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, uh, talk about uh, uh, anti-colonial ideas these days. And, you know, we kind of reject colonialism. But we forget that there were people alive at the time who did too. I mean, Swift was right in the middle of all this colonization that England was doing. And this is his image of it. Um, I thought he, he saw it with a very kind of clear-eyed view. Um, and then he really twists the knife because in the next paragraph he says, But this description, I confess, doth by no means affect the British nation, who may be an example to the whole world for their wisdom, care, and justice in planting colonies, their liberal endowments for the advancement of religion and learning, their choice of devout and able pastors to propagate Christianity, their caution in stocking their provinces with people of sober lives and conversations from, the, uh, from this the mother kingdom, their strict regard to the distribution of justice. Uh, again, you have to catch the kind of dripping, sarcastic, ironic tone. Oh, this is not the way Britain does it. We do everything perfectly, right? Um, so, again, there's the, even here, though I think Gulliver has become an object of the satire, there's still some uh, some satire that Swift is getting in. And I think you can see that the, the, the satire in Part 4 is a lot more complicated. It's a lot more multi-leveled than in the first voyage to Lilliput. Uh, it's a darker image. It kind of satire almost turns in on itself, and it's satirizing itself in a way. Um, it's a, a, a very, very powerful uh, and disturbing in a lot of ways. I always find reading part four of Gulliver's Travels a, a very disturbing prospect because it puts a very dark view on things um, with, without a lot of the, again, without any of the humor or levity that you get in uh, the earlier books. Uh, well, that uh, will leave uh, Gulliver's Travels there. I will... Uh, talk next time a little bit very briefly uh, about the final exam and the format uh, for that uh, but this will be the last lecture for the class uh, I hope that you have enjoyed it as much as I have giving these lectures I love this stuff that we're reading and I hope you've found at least some of it that you've enjoyed as well now, if you have questions about the final exam or, or other things in the class, you can always email me at drmarkwomack at gmail.com. 
I thank you for your attention.